who are remaining in the sanctuary. Um, our text for this morning is Leviticus 1 through chapter 27. I'll begin reading. No, I'm not kidding. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, today's the last Sunday in Leviticus. Um, and we're going to have Leviticus in review. And so we're going to be moving kind of in a sweeping way through the book, connecting it to some of the New Testament ideas that we've seen. But there are a few passages in Leviticus I'd like to read first at the beginning to, to, kind, of, to kind of get us going in the right direction. So if you want to turn to these and, and, and kind of earmark them, that's fine. They're very short. If you just want to listen, that's okay as well. Um, but they're going to be from Leviticus 11, from Leviticus 19, and from Leviticus 20. So in Leviticus chapter 11, beginning in verse 44, it reads, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. A couple of pages later in Leviticus chapter 19. Verse two, it says, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. And then depending on the size and the extent of the study notes in your Bible, one page over in Leviticus chapter 20, verse seven, you shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am the Lord, your God in that same chapter down in verse 26. Thus, you are to be holy to me, for I am uh, for I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for this book of Leviticus. Father, thank you for the ways that it has pointed us. To the glory of your son, Jesus. Father, thank you for the ways that it has shown us. What and it means to be holy, how through Christ we can and are holy. Father, forgive us when we strive to make ourselves holy. Rather than resting in the righteous gift of holiness that we have received from the work of Jesus upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so this morning, I want to run through um, six distinct things from the whole book of Leviticus to kind of tie it together, this Leviticus in review, seeing Jesus on every page. So the first thing, Jesus is the complete fulfillment of the blood sacrifice system. Now, if there were ever a place... Somebody could say, man, that would be a good one. Uh, I don't usually ask for them, but I just, you guys must be dozing or something. Because in case, unless you've just not been here, the blood sacrificial system is a burdensome system. The New Testament talks about it that way. The Old Testament actually talks about itself that way. It's a burdensome system. You've got to make sure that the animal's the right kind, right age, right purity, in certain cases, the right gender, you have to make sure that, that there's just there's a host of things about the animal that you have to make certain of. 
And then as a participant in the blood sacrificial system, you have to bring the animal to where the priest is and be an actual participant in the killing of the animal with the priest. And then the priest has a whole host of things to do with this dead slash dying animal that you just helped kill with its blood, with its entrails. I had to throw entrails in there one more time for my wife's sake. Um, she's like, I'm so glad you don't have to say that word anymore. There you go, babe. Anyway, so you have to do the stuff with the animal and the parts of it and its carcass and its skin. And certain things get burned up and certain things get thrown away and certain things get taken outside and certain things stay inside. And the priest has to make sure on certain sacrifices that he's done certain things for himself before he makes a sacrifice for you. The entire blood sacrifice system is a burden that was repeated just about every day of the lives of the nation of Israel. Just about every day. When they finally built a temple that was permanent instead of a tabernacle that traveled, They had tunnels built from the offering area to let the blood flow out of the temple. That's how much blood was usually circulating its way through from however many sacrifices were regularly made. And when the temple was destroyed, the gold that was melted filled in those caverns and they had to break it open to get the gold out because they had to have a system of tunnels for the blood. Burdensome. Jesus is the complete fulfillment of the blood sacrifice system. We no longer need to sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of our sins. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Jesus' blood is sufficient. The, the blood of bulls and goats, it says in the New Testament, can in no way forgive you of your sins. So not only was that sacrificial system a burden. It had no way of actually accomplishing the desired effect of the system. It was always temporary. There was a great cancer of sin in every human heart in the nation of Israel. And they were putting a band-aid on their cancer every day by offering an animal sacrifice. And then they had that one great day of atonement every year. And everybody's sins are forgiven. I'm throwing that in air quotes for the internet. That's what I just did. Sins are forgiven for that day. And then guess what happens the next day? You sin again and you bring another animal sacrifice. Jesus' blood is sufficient. Jesus' death and resurrection has made the old system completely unnecessary in every way. There's no need. For us to raise animals with the intent of sacrificing them to appease God's wrath that we might stand right before him, at least in a temporary way for short periods of time. We don't have to do that anymore. 
Christ Jesus has offered himself to the Father through the eternal covenant, the great once for all sacrifice, the God man, as Anselm of Canterbury said, and why did God become man? He said that we have the infinite worth of God and the one for one sacrifice of man built into the individual that we call the incarnation, Jesus Christ, and his infinite worth of his sacrifice, yet the equality of his sacrifice toward us because he was a human like us has now made all other sacrifices obsolete. He has has fulfilled the sacrificial system. He has appeased the wrath of God. He has satisfied God's justice. He has become the just and the justifier. And the book of Leviticus teaches us the type and the shadow and the temporal nature of things. There's a a, a two-sided Glory slash burden to Leviticus. The glory is, is that there is something that can be done so that you can at least sort of be right with God. That's that's valuable. Otherwise, you're just grasping at straws and boxing the air. But then there's a great burden in the fact that it's never permanent. They had to keep doing it over and over and over and over And did I do it right? And did the priest do it right? Not so with Christ. He has made a once for all sacrifice. Entering into the heavenly place. That that holy of holies. That invisible place. That tabernacle not made with hands. And being both priest and altar and sacrifice and being raised from the dead has fulfilled all of the mandates of God's justice and now extends to us through grace freely the gift of actual holiness and right standing with God. No work that we do. And Leviticus shows us in type and shadow that there's a great hope to be had, but until that hope comes, there's a great burden to endure. Second thing that I want us to note from the book of Leviticus kind of holistically is that Jesus is the complete fulfillment of the priesthood. He's a complete fulfillment of the priesthood. Friends, hear me this morning. We no longer need anyone as a go-between. One guy... One day a year could go into the holiest place in the tabernacle system, eventually the holiest place in the temple system. The high priest on the day of atonement can make the atoning sacrifice in the holy of holies. They eventually, in tradition, got in the habit of tying a rope around that guy's leg in case he went in there unworthily and God killed him so they could drag his dead body out. One time a year. Someone could go into the quote unquote presence of God. And if you want it to stand right before God and you weren't a priest, you had to take your sacrifice, your grain offering, your wave offering, your drink offering, whatever host of offerings you might be bringing and give them to the priest. And he had to make sacrifice on your behalf. 
Because there's layers of separation. And by the time they build the temple, instead of having a temporary tabernacle, there's even more layers of division. You have the holy of holy place that only the high priest can go to. You have the holy place that the other priest could participate in. You had the court of the men, which was there, which was where Hebrew men could go. You had the court of the women, which was where Hebrew women could go. And then you had the court of the Gentile, where all of us pagans in the room could, could worship the one true God, but from afar. And there were walls of separation keeping us from God. And the avenue into God, regardless of where you fell on that food chain, was the priest. And if you weren't the high priest, you never got into the presence of God yourself, ever. But thanks be to God, the Lord Jesus Christ is the complete fulfillment of the priesthood. And we no longer need anyone as a go-between. We have direct access to the Father because we have been redeemed by the Son. Jesus Christ makes us to be a priesthood of believers. We participate in the work of the true tabernacle, which is the kingdom of God. That's what we do. Jesus has invited us into the presence of God. That's what he's done. We now get to intercede for one another. Because Christ is interceding for us. And Christ dwells in us and we dwell in Christ and we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he has commissioned us as our spiritual head and we his spiritual body as our spiritual husband and we his spiritual bride to do the great work of his father. We need no one to go between for us. We can walk right into the presence of God Almighty ourselves as children because he is our father. Why? Because that perfect blood of Christ that we were just talking about, him fulfilling this blood sacrificial system, has paved the way for us that when God sees us, he now sees Jesus and he loves us with the love with which he loves his son and he calls us his children and he welcomes us into his everlasting presence. We don't need a priest. We don't need a priesthood. We are the priesthood because Christ has become the great high priest and he has made us to be a royal priesthood, a people of his own possession, a holy nation. This is what Peter says, quoting the Old Testament. Third thing that I want us to see this morning. Jesus is our only true and right object and source of worship. In the Levitical system, there were piles and piles of regulations about how to worship. And the very first death penalty sentence that we see in the book of Leviticus has to do with not worshiping the Lord correctly. These regulations were hard to follow. And very dangerous for those who did not follow them correctly, especially as they related to the worship of God. And there were a lot of stipulations about what that needed to look like. Praise be to God. Hear me this morning. 
the only real regulation that we have in the new covenant that we have for worship now is that we worship God in spirit and in truth. Are there others? Yes. Are there other things that we need to be mindful of? Yes. We need to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We need to make sure that things that when we come together for corporate worship are done in an orderly way and not in chaos. There's lots of recommendations of how to structure things and what things need to look like and elements to a worship service that make it a good and sound means of grace worship service, like the preaching of God's word and public prayer and common confession and those sorts of things. But the overarching regulation, the overarching principle of the new covenant is that you worship God in spirit and in truth. I will take that any day over the 613 regulations of the Old Testament, more than half of which have to do with how you worship God. Worship God in spirit and in truth. That's going to have some guidelines to it because it's not just any old spirit and it's not just any old truth. It's God's spirit and it's God's truth. And so there's a way that he still would like for you to be about this. But wow, isn't that so much more inviting and mercy filled than breaking out all of these regulations? And can you imagine that first worship service? We read about it here in Leviticus where Aaron's sons offer the wrong kind of offering and God kills them right there and then tells their father, the high priest, don't mourn your children. Keep doing the work that I gave you to do. Wow. Friends, Jesus Christ is himself the object of our worship. We are to praise God through Christ because Christ is the God man. We enter into the worship of the Trinity through the access point of Jesus Christ, the one who has redeemed us. That's what we do. He is worthy of worship. He is worthy of praise. As the New Testament said, he is worthy of honor and glory and dominion and majesty, both now and forever. The, the Father Himself has exalted upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the name which is above every name, so that at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that the Lord Jesus is the glorious one. He's our object of worship. And not only is He our object of worship, He is our source of worship. If I want to rightly worship God as Trinity, I must enter into that relationship of worship through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the gate onto the narrow road. He is the access point to the Father. He and the Father are one. And to know the Father is to know Him, and to know Him is to know the Father. This is how worship happens for us. Not through regulations, not through sacrifices, not through grain offerings, not through feast days, not through any sort of setup like that, through the completed work of the glorious God-man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ himself makes our very lives an act 
of worship. Friends, our lives, per Paul's writings to the Romans, are to be acts of worship. When we do this, worship. Yes, very plainly and obviously. That's what this is. Husbands, when you love your wives, worship. Wives, when you respect your husbands, worship. Parents, when you don't provoke your children to wrath, worship. Children, when you obey your parents to the Lord, worship. When you love your enemy and do good to those who insult you and hate you and abuse you, worship. When you do the one another's to the family of faith, the hundred plus that are listed in the New Testament, worship. When you do the simple things that reflect Jesus to the world. Things that I struggle with greatly in my daily life, like being patient in traffic. Worship. When you change your kid's diaper, Martin Luther talked about this. He said, when a father helps to change his child's diaper, it's in German and it's older, so the language is different, but just go with it for modern text. He is demonstrating more of the gospel than all of the monks and all of the monasteries and all of the world. Worship our very lives have become acts of worship because of what Jesus has done. Fourth thing that I want us to see. Jesus is the absolute fulfillment of all of the feast days. Say, wouldn't that be covered under the blood sacrifice? Yes, all of the feast days involve some version of a blood sacrifice, including the Passover, because there's a lamb that's killed for the celebration. But the feast days had other kinds of regulations to them and other points around them besides just the animal sacrifice that could be made at other times throughout the year. First and foremost, the chief of all of the feast days of the old covenant system, Jesus is our day of atonement. That's what he is. It's not just what he did. It's what he is. He is our perpetual, everlasting Never-ending, completely satisfactory, doesn't have to ever be done again, Day of Atonement. When He offered Himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, He did so in such a way that no sacrifice for our sins would ever have to be made again. And the purity and the righteousness and the holiness and standing before God that we received in the moment of Christ's work lasts forever for those who are under the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even when we woke up the next day and were faithless and sinned against God, 
He was still faithful to the work Christ had done rather than the sin we lived in and continued to extend mercy to us regardless of our circumstantial conditions of rebelling against his revealed will. And there was no need to sacrifice him again or another animal again or bring another offering again for Christ has completed his work for his people for all time. He is our day of atonement. And it is a remarkable, glorious day. Jesus Christ is also our Passover. The second greatest feast celebration in the Old Covenant reality. Behind the Day of Atonement. The Passover was a celebration. Of being delivered from the death angel and the judgment of God. On his pagan enemies and their pagan gods. And the first stepping point of freedom from slavery. And redemption into a land of promise. Remarkable thing to celebrate, of course. And when the Lord Jesus Christ, just prior to his crucifixion, celebrates that Passover meal with his disciples. He endows it with a completely different meaning altogether. And no longer is the lamb the center point of the celebration. Because Jesus Christ himself is the lamb. And there will be no need to celebrate anything in the economy of God with the blood sacrifice of an animal ever again. Because Christ will be the blood sacrifice. And so the lamb that was the center point is removed completely from the picture. And now the bread that has always been there. And the wine that had traditionally been there but not stated in the scripture. Now becomes the two center focus points, neither of them requiring a blood sacrifice, but both of them being given the meaning of his blood sacrifice, his broken body and his shed blood in the cup. And now, instead of this being simply a celebration of a particular nation state being delivered from slavery from another nation state, now it's the declaration that all peoples everywhere, when they come under the grace of his broken body and his shed blood, can be redeemed from the great slavery that they have to sin in their lives, uniting them with all other believers who have come under the gospel of Jesus Christ, a far superior celebration in every way, because Jesus is our Passover lamb and we don't need to sacrifice another one again. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And now we regularly get to celebrate what we call the Lord's table. This greater fulfillment of this notion of the Passover. Where Christ's body and Christ's blood are represented in non-blood sacrifices. Because there's no need for a blood sacrifice anymore. Jesus has accomplished all that was represented by every single feast day. We could run back through all of them. But if you recall, we went through each one point by point and showed how Jesus has fulfilled them, the booths and the harvest and the ingathering. Fifth, the book of Leviticus, as we read from the three texts from Leviticus 11, 19 and 20, is about holiness. That's what the book's actually about. Like if you were going to put a subject matter theme on the book of Leviticus, it would be holiness. God's holiness and our need to be holy in relationship to a holy God. That's a cinch, and how that, how, how that happens. 
Like what regulations have to be fulfilled for that to actually take place. So Leviticus is about holiness. And friends, Jesus is our holiness and he is the one who makes us holy. I know it's not a popular opinion. And I taught a Wednesday night course on it not long ago. And I know that there are people who disagree with me, maybe even people in this room who disagree with me. But I contend that we are not striving to be holy. Most of the errors in evangelical modern Protestant Christianity is an error of misused labor and effort. We are striving to accomplish something that is already ours. The Christian does not strive to be holy. The Christian is holy. That's what you've been declared by Jesus. The word saint in the New Testament means holy one. That's what we are, not what we're trying to become. And we spend so much of our spiritual lives and existence attempting to accomplish a feat that has already been accomplished for us by the only one who could do it for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, in his crucifixion and resurrection, he, in the sending of his spirit to dwell in us under the grace that comes from faith in him and repentance by way of the gospel, has made us holy. That's what we are. Friend, this morning, no matter what sin you're wrestling with, no matter what thing you're struggling with, no matter what thing you keep crawling, as the Old Testament says, like a dog returning to its vomit, no, no matter what it is that is setting you back in your life, even in the midst of your most grievous active sinning right now, if you truly are in Christ, Even at your worst moment where you yield to the old man that is still thrashing about inside of you. You, before God, are holy. And I know there's a reason for the silence. Because we all know our own wretched sinning. And we find that statement impossible to believe. I know know how wretched I am. Had some uh, uh, dear friends get my wife and I some T-shirts recently. And hers was, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, have flowers on it and stuff. You know, very much like my wife, you know. And mine said, I'm the literal worst. And it had reference to Romans chapter 3 and uh, Paul's statement about being the chief of sinners. And I actually found it remarkably hilarious because it's spot on. Like, I'm the literal worst. Like, I'm the worst sinner I know. And in the process of knowing how great my sin is. It's unfathomable to me. That simultaneously in the most grievous moments of my own sinning. Because I am in Christ. 
and he holds me by the power of his hand and no one can snatch me from his hand or the father's hand because their hand is one and it has surrounded me by his grace and for his glory, not my works, not my efforts, not my successes, not my failures, but his own sovereign power. I am still holy before God on my worst day. Friends, that's way better than the book of Leviticus. I just want to throw that out there to you. Way better. And it's so hard to believe. Because we're so wretchedly sinful, even in the gospel. Even when we are striving to live a life that looks like the life of Christ, like the New Testament says we should. If we're honest with ourselves, we fail so miserably at it. And yet God, when he looks at us, does not look at us with distaste or disdain. He looks at us as a father loving a child and says, I have declared you holy. God, through Christ, has everlastingly set us apart for himself. That's part of what it means to be holy. Set apart for God. And friends, one of the greatest things that would help all of our spiritual lives is if in, instead of trying to be holy, we would remind ourselves every day as the day starts, I am already holy. And then ask ourselves a very simple question before we act on whatever it is we're about to act on. Is this the right use for a holy thing? You want to wage war with your sin? Stop looking at yourself as something that's broken and flawed. You are not an Adam anymore. You are now in Christ Jesus, sons and daughters of the Most High King, seated on thrones with Him, crowned with His glory, robed with His righteousness, invited guests at His banquet table, declared holy by the Most High God. Stop looking at yourself as broken, flawed, helpless creatures. You have been delivered from the death that was in Adam. You have been given righteousness and life that is in Christ. And when you begin to pursue that which is wicked, stop and ask yourself, is this the best use of a holy vessel? Because that's what Christ has done for us. God causes us to be holy, not because of us, but because Christ Himself is holy. We have eternal union with Christ in the gospel. And it can't hear me, friend. God's the one that put it together. Not you, not me, not my works, not my efforts, not my strivings, not my prayers, not my righteous actions, not my religious duties or activities. God in his sovereign grace and will has placed me in union with Christ. That's what he's done for me in the gospel. And because Christ is holy, I am holy. End of story. Now, I'll be honest with you. Most days, I don't feel that way. And if we could run the tape back on most days, most days, I don't look that way. 
praise God, that doesn't change the story that I am still holy. Friends, way better. Why is the new covenant considered the better covenant? Way better than this. I was holy for like three hours when I made my last sacrifice. And then I sinned again and it's after nightfall. So I have to wait till tomorrow to cover that one. And bring another animal. We're running out. Like, if I'm being honest about how a train wreck of my life is, I'm running out of animals. Way better. So as we close, I just want to touch briefly on the idea of the gospel and the book of Leviticus. Because, friends, I'm convinced, and those of you who've been around the 12 years that we've been together, you know that this is how I read the Bible. I don't apologize for reading the Bible like this. I'm not ashamed of reading the Bible like this. I'm delighted to read the Bible like this. I hope and I pray that God uses me in some small way to convince hosts of other people to read the Bible like this because evangelical Christians have made a train wreck of Christianity because they've read the Bible wrong for way too long. I'm off my soapbox now. So, what do I see when I read through the text, particularly Old Testament text? I... See Jesus. His name is not in the book of Leviticus, but he is on every page. Every page. And friends, hear me this morning. If Jesus is on the page, so too is his gospel. His great message of salvation. So what do we see in the book of Leviticus? How do we come to the reality of God's mercy filled gospel from the book of Leviticus? Well, we have to kind of go cross section about how the whole rest of the Bible talks about the law of God. Particularly the capital L law of Moses given by God. What is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is not to make you moral. The purpose of the law is not to save you. The law has one great purpose and one great purpose only to show you that you are a wretched sinner in need of a savior. That's the purpose of the law. And friends, the book of Leviticus does that quite well. I don't know about you, but just this time that we've spent These 20 some odd weeks that we've been together in the book of Leviticus, as I've read through it, as we've gone through it together here publicly. When I look at this, I feel nothing but the weight of my sin. That's what I feel when I go through Leviticus. There's not one page in Leviticus where I read through it and go, huh, hey, I actually do pretty good with that. It's not happened for me. Maybe it's happened for you. It doesn't happen for me. I go through Leviticus and it talks about the regulations and worship and sin and how you treat neighbors and how, how you do all a host of other kinds of things and sexual ethics and political ethics and civic ethics and economic ethics. And you, it just runs through all this, almost every aspect of human life. And I, and I read through the page and I go, wow, my life's a train wreck. And I turn to the next page. Ooh, I want to go back to that page. because I'm even worse on this page. Wow. And I just kind of go through it. And by the time I get done with it, I feel the weight 
of the burden of the glory and holiness of God on my shoulders. And left to myself, I feel despair in my capacity to be pleasing to a holy God, which is exactly what the law is supposed to do to you. It's supposed to drive you to the end of yourself. So that when you get to the end of it, you look around and you say, without God intervening in a supernatural and grace-filled way, I have no hope. That's what the law is supposed to do. And friends, Leviticus, like I said, does it very well. But what else does Leviticus do that is also found on essentially every page in the Old Testament? Running through that great burden and weight of the law and of sin that we find. This great mountain of Sinai that Paul talks about setting down on our shoulders. What do we see in the law of God? We see an incredible thread, crimson thread of mercy. And all throughout Leviticus... There are all these these little exceptions. These little hints of God's compassion and mercy and patience. There were these pictures. They were built in types and shadows of something that was better than this. That would make all of this obsolete. So that we could have a true, better, good, right standing before God. And if you're not really paying all that close attention, you miss it. You don't see it. But if you take a really close look like we've done over the past couple of months. And you really hone in on what's happening here in this text. And how the writers in the New Covenant Material talk about this text. We then begin to see the unfolding of a pre preaching of the gospel on every single page. And when we get to Jesus. We see that in his love and in his mercy and his grace, he has lifted the weight of this mountain off of our shoulders He has crushed this mountain under his feet. And he has carried us in his grace filled loving arms to the top of Mount Zion. And has seated us on a throne with him and invited us to his feast filled banquet table and has crowned us with life and glory and has robed us with his righteousness and has marked his name on our forehead. And his father calls us children because Christ is now our brother and our home is in the everlasting tabernacle, not made with hands, a city that was not built by human hands, but is forever the city of God, the great glorious place. And we ourselves have become the new Jerusalem and Christ is our husband and we are his bride. He's our great shepherd and we are the sheep that have entered into his fold and we get to enjoy all of that forever because he crushed the weight of this off of us when he died on the cross and was resurrected from the dead. Hallelujah. Praise God. The Lord. 
Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the work that Christ has done. He is sacrifice. He is altar. He is priest. He is the tabernacle itself. He is the fulfillment of all the law. And he is the giver of grace to us. Father, forgive us when we crawl back to the weight of this mountain. Father, forgive us when we long and strive to make ourselves holy through an instrument that was never able to make us holy. Father, forgive us when we exchange the fulfilling, grace-filled work of the new covenant reality of Jesus Christ with that which is merely types and shadows. Father, by your grace and for your glory, pierce all of our hearts with the beauty and the splendor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, maybe for some, For the very first time unto salvation. Father, for the rest of us, a renewal of our longing for Christ himself. Father, we thank you in advance for the work that you will do through your word in Jesus name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together this morning.